1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the ATI Podcast. This is Barrett with you once again. We are excited to bring you an STL-based makeup effects artist, as well as mask maker, Logan Cole. In our conversation with Logan Cole today, we get into inspirations, what originally inspired him to follow this trade. We also get into some of his favorite artists in the field who are in turn inspirations as well. We also discuss at length some of the more current makeup effects artists that inspire Logan, as well as some work in film more recently that we enjoyed. So we're going to get right into it today. Will you all please welcome to the ATI podcast, Mr. Logan Cole.
0: Hey, this is Josh from ATI Podcast. For show updates and news about the podcast, follow us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast 22 on Twitter at podcast underscore ATI, on Instagram at the ATI Podcast, on TikTok at ATI Podcast. DMs are always welcome. Have a question for the show? You can always email us at atipodcastquestions at gmail.com. Stay safe out there.
1: Welcome back to the ATI podcast, everybody. We're happy to have you here. Barrett Lewis with you on the call as usual. Josh Welch to my side. Hello, hello. And we got a very special guest this week, Logan Cole. Logan how are you doing sir? Doing all right how are you guys? We're doing good my man but uh, yeah so we've got Logan Cole here with us a St. Louis based mask maker and makeup effects artist I know that you reached out to me kind of earlier on in the show and and offered your services and uh, I appreciate you doing that because you know we're always looking for guests and content furthermore you know you're kind of you're different than a lot of our other guests you know we haven't had anybody kind of in this realm you know mask making visual and, artists yeah you know? visual artists and and makeup effects and that sort of thing so we really appreciate having you on and and help bringing that variety that we try to bring to our audience as well and then we we have an array of interests you know so you know not that I like to promote other people's podcasts sometimes especially as ter- more turdy as people have gotten over the years but uh <laughs> you know like one 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 of the best podcast episodes I've ever heard in my life is actually a Joe Rogan episode where Rick Baker was on and I've always been fascinated by Rick Baker and his work and how he was able to do some of the masks, and you know, thriller, for example, John Landis directed the thriller music video, and I watched a lot of the behind the behind the scenes stuff with that. American Werewolf in London, you know, that's another piece of iconic work from Rick Baker. But you know, those were kind of my early fascinations, in particular with you know, makeup and and special effects and mask making, and then of course the old Universal movies. What what got you into mask making and that sort of thing?
2: Well, it's funny because it's actually very very similar to the. There are you know, two movies that I consider really instrumental in me being interested in this, uh, even a little bit. The first one was uh, the 1941 Wolfman from Universal. Absolutely. And had been interested in those movies, even as a very, very young kid. Uh, In fact, like the first VHS, I'll say, that I spent my allowance money on was The Wolfman.
0: Oh, nice. (laughs) Hell yeah. Nothing wrong with that, dude.
1: I probably spent mine on something way more embarrassing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) As a very young kid, my fascination with that movie and the rest of the Universal Monster movies was I, I was never really scared of them. I was more amazed that they could find actors that looked like that it's like how do you find somebody that looks like frankenstein's monster and you know how do you find somebody that can turn into the wolfman and my dad kind of sat me down and was like you're not a very smart person (laughs) he didn't say that. (laughs) he said uh Actually, it's it's basically like a really, really high quality Halloween costume. Right. That was that was sort of the way he explained it to me. My you know four year old brain understood it was that it was essentially a really, really high quality Halloween costume. What that sparked in me was you don't have to buy Halloween costumes at the store. So for the next several years, my goal became every Halloween. I wanted a homemade Halloween costume and my parents would indulge me in that and they would help me make it. I would help them make it because I was a little kid, but I, <laughs> yeah. would, I would tell them what I wanted and tell them kind of my ideas for things. And they would go, yeah, that could work or mm, let's try this. Cause what you've come up with is not structurally sound and is going to fall apart if, sure. <laughs> if right. you take two steps in it. So for the next few years, that was, that was kind of what I did. And as I got older, I got more involved in making uh, my own Halloween costumes and then when I was 12 years old, I was like, this actually up late with my dad again, watching the, what do they call it? Uh, the AMC Fear Fridays thing that they used to do. Yeah.
1: yeah oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah.
2: They played an American werewolf in London. And I saw that, and I saw the transformation sequence, and I was absolutely floored. Yeah. My dad is a huge science fiction and horror fan and he had a bunch of back issues of fangoria from back in the 80s he had some cinefx magazines and some stuff you know he dug those out and he let me read them and that's where i learned about rick baker and tom savini sure. and stan winston dick smith and people like that at that point realized that it was actually a career that you could have and you could do all year round and you didn't have to save it up for you know one night in october
0: right right
2: Absolutely, that, that's
0: awesome, dude. That's cool. It's connected to like even to your childhood. You've been doing it since you were a little kid, so that's awesome, man. It's cool <laughs> that you followed something that you've were infatuated from when you were a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: and and you talking about some of your early interests as well, and and you originally thinking that you know they found actors that look like that. It's funny <laughs> that you mentioned that because I know with like some of the Wolfman type stuff that I saw when I was younger, it was real close to you know. Things like the Ripley's Believe It or Not type stuff, Guinness World Book of Records, those type of collections. And then like as cable programming expanded, they would have shows like introspective pieces or uh, like, for example, they came across like the Cavemen Brothers. Mm-hmm. And uh, years later, Geico would, you know, make a character of them and, and be a part of their marketing <laughs> and everything else. But there was literally, you know, folks with genetic dispositions. I believe that they were middle middle America or perhaps from South America if uh, memory serves me correct, but it it was actually brothers had a, a genetic disposition that caused them to have very hairy features throughout their body. And I thought, well, that's probably how they made those movies. So it's it's funny that you had that thought. Yeah. Because that that was, you know, whenever you see the original, you know, uh, Wolfman from 1941 that you mentioned earlier, it, it, there's a very similar look there, actually. Mm-hmm. So I could see that as a kid, for sure.
2: Yeah, they've got that kind of hypertrichosis look to them. Yeah. Where it's just mostly fur and very little prosthetic work that's making them look. Well, in fact, honestly, the prosthetic that I, I, I love Jack Pierce's work, but the prosthetic that he gave Lon Chaney Jr., for the wolf man makes him look a little more like a feral hog than uh, a werewolf. I love the makeup, but it definitely does look a little more piggy than uh, wolfy. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm sure that you saw whenever they tried to, I guess, reboot the Wolfman as part of Universal's need for rebooting everything. I guess with the uh, well, Benicio del Toro. I'm now. sorry, <laughs> Anthony and Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. I actually thought it was all right. You know, it, it definitely could have been better, but I, w- I was happy to see some that they did take some more practical approaches with some of the, the makeup and effects.
2: And Rick Baker did the makeup for that film. Uh, he he, in fact, I believe as the story goes, he said that he would do it for free. If they weren't going to hire him because of his fee, because he just wanted to work on that movie so bad.
1: Right. Right.
2: Yeah. One of my favorite behind the scenes stories from that movie, which I believe he actually mentions on that Joe Rogan podcast. It's from his book Metamorphosis, which a shameless plug for somebody else. If you're into that, you should check out Metamorphosis if you haven't. He he talked about having a fight with some of the money people behind uh, the Wolfman reboot, and they were looking through his budget and they said, you know, how why why the hell are you spending thousands of dollars on hair? And he just looked over and he pointed at the logo for the movie and he said, he's a Wolfman. If you don't have
1: hair. <laughs> <movie."> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It seems so obvious, but, you know, I, the studios have just gotten so accustomed to everything becoming CGI as well, you know, so like, yeah, you know, and, and in some respects, yes, it is a cost cutting me- measure and and. Yes, there's a lot of things that you can do with computers nowadays that you couldn't, you know, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Certainly not 1941, but CGI,
0: though, man, it, it will ruin some characters, especially werewolves so. like yeah, um, under yeah. like Underworld's a prime example of that. You know what yes, I mean? Like, yes, I, that's such a great movie. But the CGI work with the lichens is what kills it, in my opinion.
2: And it's especially like very, very obvious when you compare it to the really, really nice suit work that's in that movie.
0: Right, yeah, the costume department kills it. They don't
2: mesh well. I will say this, as far as CGI and werewolves, this may surprise some people, but I'm not totally against CGI. I don't hate it. I think it's a tool, and I think if you use it correctly, it can be really, really good. One of the best Wolfman designs... Uh, came from a frankly not very good movie (laughs) and it was a it was a pretty it was a pretty solid blend of cg and practical effects and that was skinwalkers yeah so stan winston studios handled the the makeups for the characters and they were about 90 percent practical makeups but they did things like tweak their eyes and move them slightly farther apart and tilt them just right. to give them more of an animalistic look and something you couldn't do without building like a full animatronic head right but they preserved the performance and like again 90% of that was makeup it was just the the other 10% pushed it the rest of the way and despite yeah, that movie sure. just sucking uh- <laughs> <laughs> at least right, in my opinion, right, right. the werewolves look really good in it. So
1: you know, CGI enhancing, you know, being used as a tool as an ancillary tool. You know, I'm I'm totally all about. That's just the way it's going to be for now on. You yeah. know, as far as CGI is concerned, it's gonna it's gonna predominantly be in films. But you know, I I can go back and think of times. You know, like it kind of when, in my adolescent years, like a big movie that I was really into at the time, American Werewolf in Paris, which is supposed to be you know technically a sequel to American Werewolf in London, but you know, other than just kind of the mythos and, and what takes place in the movie from, you know, from an, a literal operational standpoint, there's really no time factor beyond that. It was it was semi-popular, but the the werewolf in that is just so cheesetastic, <laughs> you know, and the CGI work. But you have to think about the times, too. You're talking mid-late yeah. 90s, you know.
2: Team Wolf looking. Actually, this is going to surprise a lot of people, especially your previous guest, Doug Wicker. I don't hate that movie. I think it's a fun, cheesy movie. Like, it's not going to win any awards. But I will right tell now. you this. So you said that it is not connected to an American werewolf in London aside from the premise, the general premise. There is actually one connection, and that is that Seraphine's mom is Alex Price from the first movie.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
2: Wow. They don't make a big deal of it, and it's really only something you would know if you're a super nerd and have like read you know, breakdowns of what's supposed to happen in the movie. They were supposed to make it clearer, but the idea was that Alex from the first movie is the ghost that shows up in seraphine's house at that one point that seraphine is david's daughter and that's why she's a werewolf i got you the the thing that grates me about that movie that i just cannot stand is when they show her transforming for the first time and she's in that the sewer and she like pulls her skirt up and her leg breaks to bend backwards right that's not anatomically correct. Right. I know I'm going to argue about anatomical accuracy in werewolves, but werewolves, that weird backwards bending leg that dogs have that they usually give werewolves, it's not backwards bending. That second bend is their ankle. They just have a really long foot, and they're standing on the balls of their feet.
1: Right, exactly right.
2: Yeah, whoever did that, like, the fact that they didn't take three seconds to look at an anatomy book and figure that out just grates the shit out of
1: me. <laughs> It was one of those movies that I watched a lot when it came out. I liked it a lot when it came out. It helped the fact that they had a bush on the soundtrack as well at the time, <laughs> you know, so that I was really into that at the time. And uh, it, it was kind of a product of its time in many in many ways. But there was a lot of movies actually that were close to that. They got overlooked, like, you know, I think kind of a sleeper movie. Just came out a few year, within a few years of that is uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf. I don't know if you ever saw that with Vincent. Castle. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that that's actually a pretty underrated movie, and a lot of people overlook it. That, that is a batshit insane movie, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and well, and then also you, you don't see a lot of them made like it's kind of a period piece, really. You know, and, and it was a, it was a unique premise in that regard. Mm, it's a period
2: piece, kung fu monster. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely werewolves in general you know there's been a ton of the movies made we kind of had this talk last week whenever we were doing our favorite horror movies panel like with vampires in particular like there's a lot of vampire movies there's a lot of werewolf movies there's not a lot of good ones yeah i mean there you can you can do a punch list of them but by comparison as to how many has been churned out versus you What's know the quality. good ones yeah the quality right. ones and and there's usually a huge drop off there's not too many oh, yeah. in the middle of the road you know they're either really good <laughs> or they're really bad and most of them are really bad <laughs> You mentioned a couple of names earlier, too, and some other folks that I kind of want to hit on. I know that Stan Winston gets actually a lot of hate in the community because he eventually got himself to the point where essentially it became the Stan Winston school. And, you know, he ended up having a lot of uh, people that were people that were doing apprenticeships and what have you, working on his projects. People will discredit him in, in, in his name when his name is on things in particular because he personally doesn't have the same touch. Or approach to films as perhaps like a Rick Baker is as, as involved or, or was I should say af- after a certain point that is. Do you have a strong opinion about Stan Winston?
2: I mean, I like Stan Winston. He's he's not on the same level as Rick Baker to me in terms of influence, but uh, in terms of work, I mean. So <laughs> let's just to break that down. Anybody who has a bad word to say about Stan Winston that has worked with him would surprise me, frankly, because. He is he was always the guy that would give credit to the people that actually did the work, because, yeah, it is true that after a while he kind of stopped being very hands on. But honestly, the reason he stopped being his hands on was because he hired people that were strong. And he worked with them long enough that he started to learn their strengths and he didn't feel like having to handhold them, you know, nearly, nearly as much after he kind of got to know what they were good at. So he would just assign them things and kind of let them go. And, you know, you can see the strength of the the people that he did hire, not only in the product that they put out, but also the fact that like uh, Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr. and uh, Shane Mahan, they are still in the industry today, and they're you know some of the bigger names that are still working in the industry today. And they went on to have Shane, I believe, still works at Legacy Effects, which is what Stan Winston Studio is now. Yeah, Alec Gillis uh, has well. So Alec and Tom Woodruff Jr. had Studio ADI, and then Tom Woodruff decided I think he was going to go pursue a directing career, uh, and so Alec Gillis kind of restructured his stuff, but he's still doing you know a lot of stuff. He worked on Prey recently yeah oh yeah i didn't realize that some fantastic work but even absolutely anybody that will you know talk about stan as not being you know as much of an artist because he didn't have very hands-on touch go back and watch dead and buried go back and watch something like the entity go back and watch the movies that he actually had a hand in i mean he could clearly do the stuff uh, you know it's not like he was just a businessman that ran the company it's just he got to a point and Going back to Rick Baker for a second, you know, Rick was talking about in his book that he got to a point where, you know, he had a a family at home and he would go into the shop and he would like only have the people that worked for him get a sculpture to like 40% of the way there, and then he would finish it the rest of the way to get the way he liked it. But then he was, you know, skipping meals and coming home like late at night after his daughters had gone to bed. And he had kind of an epiphany at one point after talking to a studio executive that was talking about how he missed his daughter's graduation, that he needed to pull back and kind of let people have more control over, you know, their individual work that they were uh, contributing to the film. And I guess it was just that Stan figured that out a lot earlier.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I can see that for sure, you know, in in some people, you know, I know you named some names of Stan Winston projects, but some people might be listening to or watching our show now and not realize other th- properties that he's touched. So he's done a lot of work with James Cameron in particular. So like the Terminator movies, uh, alien franchise, you know, he's, his, he is involved in that stuff. So, you know, he's, he's got some pretty, and, and you spoke about some of the animatronic stuff earlier. You know, like he was a huge innovator in, in that section in and of itself as well as the animatronic stuff being implemented oh, yeah. and very realistic throughout movies. And, you know, usually, yes, the sci-fi action type genres or whatever the case is and, and, and horror, if you will. But, yeah, Stan Winston, he... You know, I still follow the Stan Winston school stuff on Instagram is some of my favorite content that's out there. It's just so fascinating to see how they, you know, do these animatronics and and everything else and some of the makeup effects that they do in particular. Another guy that you fired off on earlier and and who I think is the most underrated guy of all, Tom Savini. And a lot of people don't, they'll see him and they'll recognize him. Oh, he's in this or he's in that. Sex machine. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, He was in, you know, if anybody's seen Martin. He was the boyfriend in Martin as well. That was kind of one of his earlier acting roles.
2: That's one of my top three favorite movies, by the way. Uh,
1: I, I do like Martin quite a bit. Yeah, I actually had never seen it until uh, during the pandemic. I had a list of movies that I hadn't gotten around to, and Martin was one of them. And I watched it, you know, about two years ago and really enjoyed it. I don't think enough people do talk about Martin in particular, but back to Tom Savini, but he, people don't realize the work that he's done and the influence that he's had in the industry as well. And, and some of the films are, Are you a fan of Tom Savini? What's some of his work that you've enjoyed? I
2: love Tom Savini. So, when I kind of started my journey into wanting to become a makeup effects artist, I was really lucky because there's a a year round Halloween shop about an hour away from where I grew up. And because I grew up in the middle of a swamp, uh, driving an hour away is not that big of a deal because you had to to do literally anything. They carried Tom Savini's Grand Illusions book 1 and 2, so those were the first books that I snapped up about makeup effects and they were the first books that really kind of gave me a peek into what it was like to work on a film. Just from reading those books Got a huge appreciation from Tom Savini, and I for Tom Savini. I don't think he appreciates my work. I don't think he knows who I am. Uh, but um, you never
1: know. Maybe. Yeah. One, you, you one can You never know. Uh,
2: but just became a huge fan of his work through that, and um, eventually. So this is a kind of a funny aside: is that I have collection i have a ton of collections of physical media and i have collections of physical media based on the makeup effects artists that worked on them and so tom savini is one of my collections probably the weirdest movie in the collection i have of his is a movie called till death do we scare which was shot in hong kong back in like 1981 i think oh wow it's a really goofy movie it's like a, a a hong kong ghost movie there's a character that that does kind of a warrant cherry pie like, giant smile gag at one point. But I, my favorite thing that Tom Savini did is, is kind of a toss-up between, oddly enough, this uh, <laughs> this Dr. Tongue that I made, like, years and years ago. It, it <laughs> kind of looks shitty up close in the camera. but
0: No, it looks awesome. I think it looks wicked, man.
2: I made this Dr. Tongue because I love that zombie from Day of the Dead. But my absolute favorite thing that Tom Savini ever did, a movie that... The movie gets a lot of appreciation, but it doesn't get a lot of appreciation for Tom's work because Tom is known as a gore guy, uh, and that's Creepshow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was gonna say Creepshow to me is one of the all-time underrated films. Period. Anytime somebody starts talking anthology horror movies, like Creepshow is one of the first movies I start talking about.
2: Yeah, Nate is my absolute favorite zombie in anything. Uh, that that he's such a just such a cool design, just a skeleton with just rotted flesh hanging off of him, and like a good chunk of that rotted flesh was rice crispy treats that were stuck on. That's yeah.
1: Awesome. Hey man, it, it worked out perfectly though too. And yeah. it's funny, like those little tricks of the trade too, that they implement sometimes. And I know Tom's kind of a run and gun type guy, like a baller with a budget is like, I like to refer to it as <laughs> like, he just like, he makes the most out of the least. Right. That, that's yeah. kind of my appreciation yeah. for him. And you know, he's, He's kind of largely in bed with George Romero, obviously. He's done a lot of work with him in particular, started in his films, even whether it's bit parts, more major parts, if you will. And obviously you could see why. And as his work progressed over time as well, as he got better and better with, you know, even with his stuff he did specifically with George. But, you know, he's done things outside of that. And, you know, like Maniac, he was involved in Maniac as well. That's another one that folks overlook as far as his work's concerned. <laughs>
2: I like the story about him shooting his own head off in Maniac. So, was it Disco Boy is the name of the character he plays in that movie? Yes, yeah. And (laughs) Zito shows up and just, like, unloads the shotgun on him uh, through the windshield of the car. Well, Tom was the one who pulled the trigger on the dummy of himself, and they did not have a permit to fire a shotgun in New York, because I don't know if it's the same now, but at the time, I don't think you Could get a permit to fire a shotgun in New York if you were, you know, not on the police department or whatever. Yeah. So they paid off some police officer. They got out there. They started filming. He points the gun at the dummy of himself, unloads both barrels into the head. It explodes. They catch it. (laughs) One police off one off duty police officer takes the gun, puts it in the trunk of his car and drives one way. And one officer leads Tom to another car and drives the other way. And then they push the car off into the river.
1: that's hilarious (laughs) that's genius yeah that's amazing man especially in new york it's really hard to get permits to do things you know and this is going to tie tom into some other parts of his work that people don't realize that he's involved with but i'm a big fan of professional wrestling sometimes we have some professional wrestling centric episodes and what have you but tom's actually uh, really good friends with bray wyatt Mm. uh windham rotunda and he actually did the fiend mask for bray wyatt which is a fantastic mask and menacing as hell. So
2: here's here's a funny thing about that. I don't know if this is sure, if this is like a, a true thing. It's a suspicion that I have. I think it's a pretty good bet to make, but I would love to ask Tom Savini. Uh, if I had one question to ask him, it would be this, and it would be kind of a dumb question to blow if you only had one question to ask Tom Savini. <laughs> but I would, ask if, I would ask him if I'm right about this. So I was watching a makeup video from the late 80s early 90s so there's a there's a very famous video of tom savini talking about makeup effects it's like a 20 minute clip i think john russo was the one that directed it and it's just him talking about like working on the movie Heartstopper and a couple of other things that he did in the early 90s late 80s and you can get that on a dvd and it also has another thing that john russo either produced or shot or something that is dick Smith. Doing kind of out of the kit makeups on some kid, because um, at the time that was always the setup. Is like the neighbor kid would wander over and want you to do makeups on him. That's hilarious. But he does this this sunburnt vampire makeup, and I swear to you, it is the fiend mask.
1: I have to check that out.
2: Like it is the coloration, the way the mouth looks, the like everything about it. If you stop it at a certain point before he's completely finished with the makeup, it's the Fiend mask. I'll actually, I'll see if I can dig up the picture and I'll send it to you and you guys can post it.
1: That'd be cool. Yeah, that'd yeah be cool. absolutely.
2: And I know Tom Savini would have seen that. So,
1: And it might have been, even been like a subliminal thing where, you know, he saw it at one time and it just uh, worked. As, I mean, you got to think a guy like that, how, what hasn't he seen right? yeah. in the business for real? but. I always just took it as, you know, some playoff of like the Joker. So like there's a line or there's a uh, series and I used to collect comic books quite a bit as well. There's a Greg Capullo, Scott Snyder series kind of ties in close to like the Court of the owl stuff, but. Whenever they did a Batman reboot about 10 years ago, there is a version of the Joker where he actually has a like peeled skin face as his Mm, mask. Yeah. And it looks very similar to that. So I always just assume that that might have been a part of the inspiration. But again, it's Tom Savini. What hasn't he seen? But yeah, I always took it as that being kind of the springboard
0: point.
2: Yeah. Speaking of that Joker in particular, have you ever seen uh, Rick Baker's makeup of that Joker?
0: I have not. I have not either. No.
2: So every year for Halloween Rick and his family have like a themed makeup that they do. And a few years back the theme was Joker. And so he made his two daughters up as different versions of the Joker. One of them was the Heath Ledger, Ledger Joker in a nurse costume. The other was like the yeah. Killing Joke Joker. And then he was Joker with the pulled back face mask. Yeah, it's it's really it's on his Instagram. You can. Josh leave. is
1: showing it to me right now. I pulled it <laughs> yeah, Dude, that's wicked. I that's awesome. We're gonna have to put that up. Yeah, too. we'll definitely have to share that. Yeah, i have never seen yeah, that. before. it's it's, cool. it's
2: fantastic.
1: I know, like some people in Hollywood will hire him sometimes to do their Halloween makeup and stuff. I want to say that uh, Heidi Klum has at least once, if not twice. I could be wrong about that.
2: I don't know if she's hired him specifically. I know she hires Mike Marino a lot. She may have hired him before she started hiring Mike, but I know for the past several years she's hired Mike Marino.
1: And I thought maybe the weekend also. I thought he used the weekend. The weekend used. To- yes,
2: yeah, yeah. He also he he got his uh, makeups done. Like the that Halloween thing with the I don't know exactly what it was called, but with like botch plastic surgery was yeah. done by Mike Marino too. For uh, you you guys out there that don't follow this stuff as obsessively as I do. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Marino, you would know for doing the incredible penguin makeup uh, in the Batman.
1: No, Uh, uh, Colin Farrell.
2: The recent Colin Farrell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Where he looks like a where he looks like a real human being not in a makeup. Yeah. Yeah. But looks absolutely nothing like Colin Farrell.
1: I thought he put on the weight. I mean, I think he did a little, but not 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 to that level.
2: He put on a little weight, but most of that is makeup. That's, you know, that's.
0: Yeah, he looked like a completely different person.
2: Yeah, and it moves so naturally. And, you know, that's this is this is a thing a lot of people don't necessarily realize is the hardest thing to do convincingly is a character makeup that is supposed to be a convincing human being like if you're looking anybody out there that is interested in becoming a makeup effects artist it's really easy to slap gore on stuff it's really easy to throw blood at somebody it's really easy to do fake injuries and stuff like that now you can do them convincingly or you can do them kind of shoddily but it's really easy to do them even convincingly if you have a little bit of practice putting a nose dead center on somebody's face and making it so convincing that somebody wouldn't even look twice at them is the hardest thing to
0: do Right. Yeah.
2: Because people are they're hardwired to look at human faces and you know we we look at human faces all the time.
0: Yeah, I read a thing that actually the the people that did the makeup for the penguin they actually took him out into like a cafe. And like through the city and stuff just to test the makeup to make sure that nobody recognized him. Yeah. Like they didn't tell nobody who he was. He wore the makeup around town. Right. He did the whole the whole character and everything. And they said it was flawless. Nobody yeah. even realized what they were doing.
1: I think the Safdie brothers did a similar gag where they went into a diner a few years back. I cannot remember why they did it. It was in promotion of something. Yeah. But uh, The Safdie brothers did like uncut gems and good time. I, I just love a good gag with, with makeup effects, you know? Yeah. For real, like, fooling people. But, you know, another Tom Savini thing I want to bring up, too, is a lot of people may not realize this as well, but he's done some collaborations with Corey Taylor from Slipknot, helped him design mm-hmm. some of his masks, too. So, oh, wow. You know, Tom Savini's kind of got his fingerprints across all forms of media, really, you know. Right. And, you know, not just the movie industry explicitly, but music and as well as professional wrestling. So other areas of entertainment, for sure. So that's why I consider him in part, you know, to be kind of like the most underrated people ever, you know, in this genre. Is there any other big influences or people that you were drawn to, you know, getting into the, to the work, Logan?
2: Rick Baker and, and Jack Pierce are the biggest ones. Tom Savini is, is a very, very, very close, close one behind there. Um, Stan Winston, we've already talked about. Aside from that, the biggest, I would say influences are actually kind of mask makers that have a style that I really like. And that's uh, sculptors like George Shell he i mean his work is just incredible he's worked on some i think he designed the navi for avatar but uh i don't hold that against him
1: (laughs) yeah right
2: but like his his mask work is just fantastic
1: what's some projects that he's been working he's worked with outside of avatar as far as his mask work that people might be familiar with
2: well so in terms of masks There's a company called Distortions Unlimited. They're probably like outside of mask collector places they're most well known for. They were on a TV show uh, on the Travel Channel called Making Monsters. Ed Edmonds and the Distortions Unlimited crew. And George Duchel was actually on that show a little bit. Okay. They had a line of masks through the 80s that were just like kind of pushing the envelope of what you saw in Halloween masks, both in terms of quality and in terms of like just weird Stuff that you would see, gore, and yeah. just bizarre creatures, and so Jordu did a bunch of tribute. I wouldn't really call them tribute masks because they were four distortions. But basically, he went through their back their back catalog and he re-sculpted all of their original masks. I don't know if he did all of them but he re-sculpted a bunch of their original masks okay to like a much higher quality and those were like recently re-released he does a lot of portraiture work and a lot of like you know commission work and stuff but he's I mean he's worked on a bunch of different uh movies as well he did I believe some Concept work for Hellboy, the Guillermo del Toro Hellboy. The one that matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, him and Mike Rotella and people like that are just fantastic sculptors that I like to watch work. Uh, just to inspire me
1: you know I don't want to spend too much time on as far as the inspirations and things because I know that you are actively doing work out there in the field too so you know as far as displaying your work and some of that before we got on the call today you you kind of opened up the curtain to us and let us know that you know sometimes you can't show that work until the the finished products out there for mass consumption so yeah let's let's get into more so the like some of the logistics the behind the scenes stuff like what actually goes into you know making these I know that you make masks and you do sculpts and I know you do makeup effects for for folks and projects and that sort of thing. Like let's get into some of the nuts and bolts. You know like if somebody's wanting to get into this field, where would you recommend them to start with as far as getting a foundation for the work, like what's entailed into it, that sort of stuff.
2: So, I would say that anybody that wants to get into it now is a lot luckier than I was when I wanted to get into it originally because that when I first got into it, I had old issues of Cinefax and Fangoria to try and, like, use a magnifying glass and look through the background of pictures to see what chemicals people had on their shelves to try and figure out, like, what somebody was using. Like, I, I distinctly remember looking through the Cinefax issue with Rick Baker and trying to figure out, like, what materials and what paints he was using for things. And it's a black and white magazine, so you can imagine yeah. the difficulty in doing that. Oh,
1: Yeah for sure.
2: But like looking at the sculpting tools that he was using and trying to imitate the like the moves that he was doing which I now realize he was posing in front of this thing with the sculpting tool. He wasn't actually sculpting, but like at the time I was, you know, trying to do that. But so what I would suggest people do now is there are a ton of resources that are free and there are a ton of resources you can pay for if you want to pay for some stuff go to stan winston school they have you can do a la carte and you can buy all kinds of videos about literally any kind of makeup effects thing you want to learn how to do any kind of mask making thing you want to learn how to do they have a video on it it can get a little pricey you know they're about sixty dollars a video Um, so, you know, if you want to learn how to do a whole bunch of stuff, that could be a lot of money, Uh, but they also do have like a a yearly subscription thing that you can pay for, so I think if you're going to buy that much, it's probably worth it to do the yearly subscription. There are also a lot of free resources out there, and I'm going to shout out a couple of them, because one of the problems with free resources is there's no quality control on them. So there have been, I I used to spend a lot of time on uh, forums, uh, mask-making forums, with people that were just getting into it. I'm, I'm a little busier now so I can't do that as much but I used to spend a lot of time on those forums and people would say I tried this and it didn't work and you know you dig into it and it's like they tried it because they watched some dumbass's video that themselves don't actually know what they're doing. Right. And yeah. and they and, and if you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what to look for in a video as a marker for quality. Right. Videos that I can channels that I can vouch for in terms of them being good resources is Distortions Unlimited channel actually has on YouTube they have a series of videos called Monster Lab and Ed Edmonds takes you through sculpting a, a monster mask making a mold of a monster mask, casting it in latex, how to paint it, how to finish it, all that stuff. Uh, And each of the videos is like an hour long roundabout so i mean he goes in depth and doesn't really cut out a ton of stuff except for like time drying and there's another channel called stilt beast studios stilt beast is all one word and it's run by a guy named alan hops and he is the uh, create i think his title is creative director for dark hour haunted house in plano texas and in his free time when he's not working on the haunted house posts a bunch of uh, how-to videos on there. And so there's mask-making videos, there's there's all kinds of fabrication videos. Fabrication is a big thing that gets kind of a bad rap too because sometimes you don't have time to sculpt and mold and cast something, sometimes you just gotta right. make it. You know, he he does sculpting, mold-making, fabrication videos, and they're how-to videos, but he also just live streams his work. So he'll, sometimes he'll just set up the camera in the shop and you can watch him for three hours sculpting on a mask or making a mold, or casting multiple masks and pulling them and painting them. So wow. it's a great resource in terms of... Especially if you
1: want to get in the weeds, yeah, and learn the craft.
2: Yeah, yeah, but it's it's an even better resource because not only do you get to see like the edited videos that explain how he does it, but you also get to see real-time how long this shit actually takes, and that's something people... Really, really don't necessarily have the greatest grasp on if they're diving headfirst into this and have never done it. Is you're going to s- spend a lot of time waiting around on stuff to dry. Yeah. His, so his live stream videos do a really good job of conveying that. And also, since they're live streams, if they're if you catch him whenever he goes live. You can ask him questions and it can be related to whatever he's doing or it can be like, hey, I have this idea for a costume or a mask or whatever. How would you go about that? You know, sometimes I disagree with the answers that he gives, but uh, I don't think they're bad answers. It's just not necessarily the way I would tackle the problem. (laughs) The answers are typically good and well thought out and will get you to a result that's at least you know, an approximation of what you're looking for, regardless of skill level. So I think he's a really good resource.
1: Another thing that I want to gloss over is fabrication, too. Like, you know, that's that's a different aspect of the game as well. And I'm sure that a lot of that has changed over the years, too, with advancements of technology. You know, mm. I don't know if this is something that you've noticed directly. It, are you seeing a lot of, and it, it has to be going on, and I, I can't say that I personally have seen a lot of it, but 3D printing, I would imagine, is has changed the game there too and hmm. perhaps made things easier, more accessible. Um, have you have you noticed much of an influence in the game, you know, that being implemented in particular?
2: Absolutely. It's really good for a few key things. Uh, one of them is rapid prototyping for anything, especially if it's a fairly low resolution of something that you're looking to create. You can give somebody a three-dimensional example of it, even if it's not as high resolution as, as the finished product is going to be. Uh, another thing is making... Like internal mechanics for creature suits. So you know, if you have like a, a, a monster head and it has like all these different lip movements and eyebrow movements and stuff like that, you have to build an understructure that will do those movements. And to to make those understructures, like if you do it the traditional way, uh, not involving three D printing, it's a lot of it, it's it's kind of a pain in the ass, frankly. But
1: <laughs> a lot of busy work. Yeah,
2: but uh, designing it in you know a CAD software and then printing it is a lot easier even if you have to make a mold of that and then cast it in something a little more resilient than whatever resin you're printing in. It takes way less time than claying up the inside of your mold and then fiberglassing that and taking it out and cutting it out and attaching all your pivot points and and running all your conduit and stuff and it's it's a lot faster. And then the other the third thing that happens with it a lot is some people are actually printing they'll sculpt a mask in ZBrush or whatever and then they will invert it and print an inverted print that is their negative mold. So they can take this inverted print and pour pour material into it and then pull it out and they've got a mask and they never have to make a mold
1: that's pretty genius i'm sure that there's people that kind of with the old school thought like that's cheating though too right (laughs) i mean is is there is there
0: some controversy there
2: i i don't personally feel that way there are people that 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 feel that way i'm not one of them although i'm also not somebody who uses 3d printing in my process frankly because i just don't like it yeah, sure. I, I'm fine with the end result, but I do this because it's a thing that I enjoy to do. And so as much of a hassle as it is to, like I said, clay up a mold and do the fiberglass work on the inside of it and stuff, I would rather do that than sit and click on a computer for, you know, a couple of hours.
0: It's part of the passion.
2: Yeah. I know, will
0: say though, I have seen like, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I follow a lot of, like cosplayers and stuff for Star Wars, and they print some incredible sets of armor and stuff. Oh 3D yeah. 3D printers with that stuff. I'm like, holy
2: crap. That's my hard edge sculpt like that it's it's honestly like the smartest way to go because there's it's very difficult to get that look uh, without a lot of effort any other way.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And then certainly I guess the big thing that we haven't addressed here too and Good for you bringing up the point, Josh, is cosplay and is the fact that, you know, when it comes to 3D printing in particular, it definitely makes it more achievable for folks to do. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, you know, at home software, there's machines out there nowadays, the household machines that you can buy. Just so, you know, there's a certain level of a cricket machine that you can buy, for example, that does some 3D printing and And that sort of stuff. You can go online and
0: purchase prints like, you know, you can find geniuses that can make these awesome sculptures online and just purchase their prints and, you know, print it, you know, it's cool.
1: So outside of looking in magazines back in the day for yourself and trying to see what kind of chemistry they had working on the shelves and shit, <laughs> uh, what are some other things that you did to kind of fine tune your crafts and so on and so forth over time?
2: I mean, I just did it. You know, I, I had a lot of these. I had a lot of these misconceptions about things, and I tried them out, and they didn't work. And I did some more research, and I tried out some more stuff. And really and truly, that's it. Like uh, since I was 12, 13 years old, on my back porch. When I was, I think, 13 years old, I had a skull that I had stuck down on a stick. It was actually a forensic skull. It was meant for like forensic reconstruction. It was like a CSI thing that you could buy at the discovery store or whatever. And yeah. so I took that skull and I wrapped it in aluminum foil and I made like a werewolf snout and I covered that in fiberglass and I got fiberglass resin all over the dryer. And it's, <laughs> it's, I, I uh, That dryer, nobody that I know still lives in that house, but that dryer I'm sure still has fiberglass glass resin on it (laughs) so I, I made this fiberglass werewolf head and then I pulled it off there cleaned all the foil out sculpted the outside of it made a mold absolutely completely and totally fucked up my first mold that I ever made and then I had to <laughs> re-sculpt it again and remold it that made me a stronger sculptor and a stronger mold maker because every single time I broke a sculpture or broke a mold after I had molded the sculpture I had to remake the sculpture like I couldn't go back to just remake the mold the sculpture got destroyed when I took it out of uh you know took it out of the mold and so if the mold was gone you know I had to just start over and so that kind of trial and error was, was was very instructive for me, especially because, and this is a piece of advice I would give to anybody that is interested in this stuff, you can't quit. There are going to be things that happen that are difficult. There are going to be things that you don't expect to happen that are going to make it harder or that are going to make it seem just thoroughly impossible. You're going to mess up. You're going to break something. You're going to have to start over on something. This brilliant plan that you had that you think is going to work is not going to work out at all. And you're going to have to go back to square one. And if you can't do that, you can't professionally do makeup effects because you have to be able to think on your feet and fix those problems as they come up.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I can imagine it is pretty frustrating. It probably does require quite a bit of patience. You have to kind of check the ego at the door too in some instances you know in the sense that you got to come with a lot of humility yeah you know you're going to make mistakes but honestly you could say that about anything kind of more my background's being a musician so you know there's there's plenty of times that I've sat in the room and I might have been the best musician but there's more times that I sat in the room and I was the worst musician so you know you can get humbled <laughs> yeah, real yeah. quick yeah. so it's definitely it's just another one of those things yeah. that, and and certainly some of the things that you've highlighted already in our conversation there are resources out there to to help you become a, a better makeup effects artist, mask maker, sculptor, you know whatever the case is. Uh, you don't there there are resources now that the example that you just used, for example, you know just because you have to start at ground zero, there might be an opportunity for you to actually learn there and how to more efficiently do the work. Nowadays, there's just like so many resources that ki- I say kids. You know, I'm I'm in my mid to late 30s now, but I say kids, but they like this is they don't know a reality outside of this. Like everything's at their at your fingertips. Like literally anything that you want to know. I even have a hard time like remembering. Like oh, I can just say hey Siri or hey Alexa. Or just Google something, you know. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm like still. There's this part of me, this innate, primitive part of me that thinks that I just had to figure figure it out myself. I need to take the rock and bang it
0: against the stick. You need to go find the bookshelf, get the encyclopedia, or not the encyclopedia. Yeah, Yeah. whatever it's called,
1: Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but yeah, you know, there are so many resources out there. So people, (laughs) even if you don't have the patience, you know, there there is a resource somewhere. Yeah, for sure.
2: And I will say for people that are worried that they don't have the patience, most of the people that know, we, know me would say that I'm one of the least patient people that they know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, if you if you have an interest or a passion in something, you have you kind of have to Practice patients. Well, sure, that.
1: absolutely. And I, again, I think if there is a passion or an interest, that innately you start to learn to have that. I want to get into some of the, you know, I, I know you got a lot of work posted up on Instagram in particular. So I've seen some various masks and sculpts and things that you've been working on over time. And again, I know back to earlier, you can only put yeah. out so much right now, too, depending on what you're working on and what's been released and so on and so forth. You know what are what are some of your more prized pieces of work that you can flaunt for us?
2: <laughs> I'll tell you about one that I can't show pictures for yet because uh, it's one of my favorites. That works. Doug Wicker and I actually uh, back in January worked on a short with a filmmaker named Mondo Franco, who's a good friend of mine. We actually became friends working on that movie. Honestly, and it is a it's a short called Bruja and i won't describe too much of what happens in it but there's some subliminal creature stuff that happens in there and the creature that i sculpted for those subliminal shots is uh, one of my favorite creatures not just design wise but also because she's actually a miniature okay because we didn't want to spend a ton of money on it so she's she's just kind of a subliminal thing that happens sometimes, and so she doesn't have any context for her size anywhere. So you could make her any size you wanted, but she's yeah, she's one of my favorite creatures, and I can't wait for everybody to be able to see her because she's she's one of those things that I've kind of privately shown off to some people that that uh, is just one of my favorite pieces of work. There's a mask that I did for a company called Nightmare Shop, and they're kind of they're defunct now. That you guys uh, talked about them with Andy yeah. a couple weeks ago, actually. I think sure did. They're uh, unfortunately they're not around anymore, but they had a mascot character named Meltdown the Clown, and he was like a toxic waste clown. I met those guys at Late Night Grindhouse, and we got to talking about working on a mask for their company, and that mask turned into several masks. And uh, but the first one we, I did for him was Meltdown. I sculpted a little maquette that was about that big to just kind of show him what I was thinking, because the design that they had for the clown, it was a really cool illustration. But if you don't design something, assuming that it's going to occupy physical space, it doesn't necessarily obey the laws of physics. So there was a lot of stuff in that illustration that couldn't actually be translated to reality. So I had to take it and do some sketches and do some like maquette sculpting for it. To show them what I was thinking and kind of proof of concept for them. And after they approved that, I sculpted. It's a huge mask. It's like oh wow, this big. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of my favorite sculptures I've ever done. I think the mask is really cool looking. Then as far as effects, I won't say what movie this is in uh, because I don't want to spoil anything. You, know, you could watch you could watch this movie and still go in blind pun intended a oh, okay. bit. Uh, but one of my favorite effects is there was a movie I worked on where I got to shove a corkscrew in somebody's eye
1: oh wow
2: that was one of my favorite effects because it's actually three effects this is a thing uh, people that aren't crazy people uh, don't necessarily think about <laughs> is that sometimes in order to get an effect to sell an effect you actually have to do it multiple ways and so there's a, a shot where a character grabs a corkscrew and this is just a, a little you know, not that I'm uh, an expert on this, far, far be it for me to you know, claim to be that, but if you're going to do an effect, here's, in my opinion, the best way to do it, you have to have a prove it for everything involved in that effect. And that prove it is like show that the person involved in it is a real person, show that the weapon, for instance, in this case, the corkscrew is a real weapon or a real object, and then have them interact with each other good example of that that's not mine is Tom Savini's axe to the face that he does uh, in the first Friday the 13th movie. They prove that the axe is real by having it hit a light bulb that's swinging above. You can obviously see that the actress is real because she's emoting and stuff. And then the way they got away with that effect and sold it is that in the shot where it hits her, it's a fake head and a real axe. And then the shot where she's sliding down the wall, it's her with a fake axe in her face. So the combination of those things makes it harder to tell as an audience kind of what you're going for. So this, this corkscrew gag, you see it go into her eye and then you see like this corkscrew sticking out of their face. And then you see them having the corkscrew ripped out of their face and blood spraying everywhere. And so each of those three components was its own effect. I I did a a life cast of their face and, uh, did a clay pour in it and sculpted it so their eye was open because when you take a life cast you don't typically do it with somebody's eyes closed or eyes open rather. Yeah, right. So I sculpted their eye open and made a a latex duplicate of their face and painted it to look like their face and put in eyelashes and eyebrows and painted the eye and all that stuff and then you actually see the corkscrew come into contact with that eyeball.
1: Better get the shot right the first time too.
2: (laughs) It was good enough that like it would bounce back so we could just reset it for Oh, okay. Because we didn't get the shot right the first time. <laughs> we actually didn't get the shot right the first three times. Yeah,
1: dude, that'd be a pain in the ass to have to rebuild that every time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we didn't get the shot right the first three times, so we had to keep resetting it. But eventually we got it right. This, The second effect where they come up and you see the little thing sticking out of their, the corkscrew sticking out of their eye. The way we did that is I took that same life cast and I made a little plastic shell that fit over their eyelid. And that plastic shell had a corkscrew, a plastic corkscrew that I had made sticking out of the end of it. And it fit into a foam handle of the corkscrew that I had cast. And then I sculpted a prosthetic that was just their eyelid that fit over the top of that plastic plate. And I went in, I glued the plastic plate down over their eye with with prosthetic adhesive. I glued the prosthetic down, and then I popped that uh, corkscrew handle on the end of the corkscrew and then just bloodied it up and everything. And so they could be totally hands-free, and they're like, ah! And then this thing is shaking around in their (laughs) eye. and, And then the final shot, they pull the corkscrew out of the eye. We did that the cheapest way possible. I have a stick And I'm standing on the away camera side of uh, the performer and like this this is the side that the cameras pointing at and I'm over here and I have this stick that has a tube that is uh, run to a syringe filled with blood and, neck, and and glued onto the side of the stick is a block of foam that the actual corkscrew is stuck in. And so we lined it up so it looked like it was sticking out of their face, if you look in profile. Yeah, yeah. And the other actor reaches up, grabs the corkscrew, and pulls it out. And at that point, I hit the plunger, and the blood starts pouring out another fun aside about this is that we were shooting in a location where we weren't we didn't tell them we were shooting a horror movie <laughs> uh, they were under the impression it was a romantic comedy it was an airbnb oh that's so, hilarious so we couldn't get blood on anything and so I was really like underselling the amount of blood I was going to spray out of this thing because I was afraid I was going to get it all over the wallpaper yeah. and it goes and it's just a little dribble that comes <laughs> it's out Like a
1: pathetic <laughs> and sad money shot <laughs>
2: Yeah. And we tried it again. (laughs) Like I, I couldn't get an in between. I, I was too afraid to go for it. And so it just keeps, you know, and this is one of the reasons that I can't hate on digital is because what ended up happening, I ended up watching the cut of the movie later and was like, wow, that blood looks amazing. How did we do that? And Uh, the director told me like it it was digital and I said that's digital blood digital blood looks like shit and uh, how did we do that this guy is like the best digital blood person I've ever seen and so I found out what actually happened is they took the little dribbles of blood and they isolated them and just blew them up really big there you
0: go that's a good idea actually
1: yeah there's nothing wrong with that and give it a little bit more of a realism but
2: I mean it ended up looking great and we didn't get blood on anything so we didn't have to pay any damages (laughs)
1: you don't think about like a lot of the, I'll just say red tape that you have to go through from time to time in, and getting the shot yeah. that you want, you know, and, and working across these various departments too, you know, so back to the times of anything like firing a gun in New York, like up until here recently, like you cannot conceal and carry in New York. I can imagine just like the hell that a person would have to go through and then, to relate that to your project as well, you guys are running an Airbnb to make this happen, and under the guise that you're doing a romantic comedy sort of thing, and it turns out it's a horror movie. Like people don't think about like the tiptoe, delicate right. dance that you have to do to get shit done like this, and. You can't be like, you know, oh, oh yeah. we're, we're shooting a horror movie and so on because, you know, people are going to magically assume the worst, you know, like, you know, people jump to like yeah. the exorcist or whatever, you know, and they think, oh, my God, they're going to be railing crucifixes and everything inside of our place. <laughs> you know, we want to be associated with this.
2: And in fact, actually, um, there was a movie I worked on where the crew didn't, like most of the crew apparently just didn't read the script. Oh my God. Before shooting, until like a couple of days before shooting, and they read it the night before shooting, and like half of them walked, because they were uncomfortable with the content of the film. Jeez. It was it was a horror movie, and it had some brutal stuff in it, and I was a small part of some of that brutal stuff, but it's, it's a movie. Yeah. Like... You know, it's all fake. You're making the movie. You know, it's fake. Like it's right, like- right, <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that I've never really quite understood. Now, contingent on what the, con I mean, there's, everybody has a threshold, if you will. Yeah. At the end of the day, yes, it's fake. And, and if you're, you're taking on a job, this is where I kind of go back to, it's, it's on those people. They should have fucking read the script Mm. if they're going to take the job. Right. You know, they they had plenty of time. That's kind of ridiculous that you just walk at the last minute. Yeah. Every one thing, if there's like, you know, issues over pay or, you know, something like that, uh, unforeseen or a check didn't clear or whatever. Right. right. But when it comes to you didn't read, that's on you. You didn't read the script. Yeah. Getting into some of your other projects as well. You know, I, I know we've kind of talked about some practical effect type stuff and, and, and and mass making as well. You know, I know there's a lot that goes into mass making though, in particular, like Mm. certain latexes that you have to use outside of, you know, the molding that we've kind of hit on a little bit as well. And then of course, if you're incorporating hair or, or other, you know, wacky things when it comes to you know making a mask you know it really at the end of the day what is what is your end goal what is the project what are you working on can you talk a little bit about some of your more prized masks that you've you've worked on as well and kind of what's went into that
2: mask making is it's kind of funny i used to really look down on mask making cuz my my thought about mask making was it's what Uh, people do if they're not good enough to be makeup effects artists because, you know, a mask is a static thing and it's not something that emotes like a makeup does. And I want to say, just to clarify, I don't think that anymore. (laughs) And I don't think that anymore because mask making is a really fun art form that shares a lot of similarities to makeup effects in, in the execution of certain processes, but the end goal is different in a way. With makeup effects, you're either doing a gag of some kind, like, you know, a blood gag or an injury or something like that, or uh, you are creating a character. With mask making, it's purely creating a character. And the thing that's that's different about mask making than makeup effects is that when you're creating a character for makeup effects, you're creating that character on top of somebody else, and, and you're bringing it to life in a way, and then somebody else, the, the performer underneath, is also bringing it to life in their own way. And so you're essentially collaboratively creating a character and they're also collaborating with the screenwriter and uh, cinematographer and director and all that to create this performance and create this character. Um, When you sculpt a mask, when you make a mask, you're making that character yourself. You're the only person responsible for making that character. You give it its personality. You give it... um, Every aspect of it, it's not reliant on anybody else. So it is, it is a very like, it's a very purely creative uh, art form for people that have to rely on collaboration for everything else. And don't get me wrong, collaboration is great and results in like some incredible stuff. Every single movie you've ever seen is a collaborative work between you know tons of people Absolutely. that are doing a dance and and making it work, but you know, at the end of the day, if you're a creative person, uh, which some people might accuse me of being, um, (laughs) then, then, um, sometimes it's, it's nice to be able to do that creative process from step one to the final step and mask making gives you the ability to do that. And it also gives you kind of a neat thing to be able to just like hang up in your house and show off to people. But but yeah, it's, it, it uses a lot of the same materials and uses a lot of the same methods. You sculpt a mask, you, you make a mold of a mask, you cast it up in either latex or silicone or neoprene or anything like that. You paint it and you want to paint them typically realistically uh, unless it's like a really weird fantasy character or sure. something like that. And, you know, when you're finishing the characters, you want to throw in these nice finishing touches to make it read realistically and read just like super creepy or whatever the character you're going for is. Sure. So, I mean, for me, like, <laughs> there's a roundabout way of getting to your question, but my favorite masks that I've worked on, like I said, one of them is that Meltdown mask. I love that sculpture. One of them is a werewolf mask that i did a few years ago and i i don't know if you can tell i really love werewolves so (laughs) you know they're they're my favorite monster and so it's it's hard for me to go a couple of years without sculpting a new werewolf thing of some kind. In fact, actually, I'm working on a new werewolf sculpture. I have finished a new werewolf sculpture. I'm working on the, the castings for that presently. I'm kind of holding off because I'm working on some other stuff at the moment. But that werewolf mask I did a couple of years ago, I really love. I love the expression on it. I think it's kind of the hairline reminds me of uh, Oliver Reed from Curse of the Werewolf. Okay. So. I'm, I'm kind of happy about that, even though that was a little bit of an accident. But I spent eight hours hearing that thing.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, that, <laughs> I could imagine that that's a pretty, like, crazy... Part of the mass making process in and of itself, too, especially with werewolves is all that hair, man, that you have to weave in there. Yeah. Did you see Werewolf by Night by chance yet? I did. What'd you think of that?
2: So Werewolf by Night is one of my favorite comic book characters of all time. I have a a Marvel Comics Presents uh, number two, Hell yeah! which was Werewolf by Night's first appearance. I really, really dug that special. Uh, I've watched it twice already. I plan on watching it a couple more times at least. I love the, the black and white aesthetic of it. Absolutely. I love the fact that a lot of the stuff in that was practical. K&B was the studio that did the... Practical werewolf suit and also the man thing. What of man thing was practical? Some sure. of them was digital replacement, right. but but some of them was was practically had. They definitely had like a full size stand in right. that they used for at least lighting reference uh, on that. Touched it up a bit with with digital, but yeah, I really dug it. I thought it was it was just the right kind of level of camp definitely I was worried a little based on some of the stuff that like once the reviews started coming out they were all fantastic but I'm like once I heard they were making a werewolf by night thing I was like digging through anything I could find to see if I could find anything about it because they were keeping it really tight-lipped and I had heard a lot of people talking about it being overly campy my opinion now is that the people that thought it was overly campy um have never watched a horror movie older than like the 2000s. Yeah, right. So, right, right. Absolutely. No, I agree with <laughs> I mean, that. I don't know if you can see this now, but I've got a uh, Dracula Prince of Darkness Hell shirt yeah. on. Or I guess since it's backwards, it's Alucard, uh, Sinric, something, <laughs> blah, 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 whatever. But, you know, Hammer Horror is... I, I love universal horror movies But hammer horror movies are also just Fantastic also a little bit campy <laughs>
1: Oh definitely yeah for sure No I mean like there's nothing wrong with uh, with A little bit of camp especially in horror don't get me Wrong there's there's genres of horror That it's not called for but yeah Yeah especially if you're a Historic horror fan again getting back To some of the universal movies you know Kind of those iterations there, there is a Level of camp and then even oh, if, you, yeah. if you're like A 60 like a 60s TV fan 60s and 70s like things like the Adam's family, the monsters, right. you know, right? like that's, mm. that is strictly camp, you know? Right. So I, I just don't, I don't yeah. understand how you could hate on it, but werewolf by night, it had a little bit, but it wasn't anything drastic. It was just the right measurement of camp in the sense that it made it not take itself too seriously.
2: Yeah. They, they, they use it very sparingly and they see what I was worried about is I don't even think I'd have minded if it had been a little bit campier, but it's like, it's part of a film series and so you don't want to go too tonally inconsistent with the rest of the series right so you know that's it was probably a good move them pulling back on it as much as they did but like i could i could have went i could have taking a little bit more I think but yeah I loved it I thought it was fantastic
1: The actor playing Gail uh, Garcia Bernal he's a great actor you know like I've seen more more oh, of yeah. this work like 20 years ago you know like Amona Perez and stuff like that and Ema Tutambien, Yeah, yeah. And, you know like he's actually yeah, in those movies yeah. but you know he's excellent in this and uh, I'm really looking forward you know like the whole buddy cop dynamic almost between man thing and the werewolf by night you know his character like that yeah. was fantastic as well Like I, I really i i know that everybody walked away wanting more of that buddy dynamic you know on screen so it was a, it was a case where they left you wanting more but in a good way and the
2: thing that i think was kind of hopeful about that again because i like i don't know if this is clear i have a little bit of an obsessive personality <laughs> but you know, I was kind of worried whenever they cast uh, Gael Bernal in their Gael Garcia Bernal, in that, that um, he was not going to do any more as the character. Because, you know, he's a fairly, like, respected actor who does, like, stuff that's that's not Marvel movies.
1: Yeah, usually art house type stuff. And, you know, he's a middle-aged actor yeah. now, you know, getting up there.
2: But I saw him, like, on a, a red carpet interview and he talked about like wanting to explore more about the character and he seemed like genuinely very excited about it so i feel like if a dude that caliber of an actor wants to work on a project and work on a character again we're probably not gonna it's probably not the last we've seen of those characters right
1: and i thought it was really interesting you know who actually directed that as well you know, yeah. Normally, uh Michael, I forget how you ad- enunciate his last name. Giacano. Giacchino. Giacchino. He does music, and he did it for this movie, but he actually directed it as well. So yeah, it was kind of out of left field.
2: That score over the end credits was fantastic. Oh,
1: absolutely! Like I was really pleased. Like I felt like totally just had everything right. You know, and 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 mm-hmm. he's done a lot of stuff in the past. You know, he's done things with Pixar and Mission Impossible movies, Jurassic World. His mm-hmm. scores are relatively popular. You like, you wouldn't think like, oh, he's just going to start making movies now, right? You're know but and then for like this to be a banger Mm. at the gate I love it it's like perhaps the best werewolf related thing I've seen in 20 years i would think and you know yeah i had, I had to ask you about it well well i had to, if you had seen it because i feel like it does take a lot from like the older universal movies outside of just the aesthetic of the film and being in black and white but the makeup effects mm. even too like what the finished product with the werewolf and stuff is as well it kind of goes back to some of those earlier conversations we were having with the universal werewolves
2: yeah and the fact that they went with that design for him instead of going with the more modern design that he'd had over well i say modern in the 80s, they redesigned him to look like uh, Eddie Quist from The Howling. Yeah. And and then, like, gradually over time, he sort of reverted back to looking like a wolfman again. So, you know, that was nice to see that he basically was just straight up translated directly off of the page in terms of that, you know, short-snouted wolfman Look
1: before we get you off here, Logan. I wanted to give you opportunity to talk about anything more recently in film or television that you've enjoyed from a have a real appreciation for from uh, either whether it's makeup effects or mask making and implementation and any type of work out there that you'd like to talk about.
2: I mean, we've talked about some of the recent makeup effects stuff that I've really appreciated. Is Mike Marino's work is I would say probably some of the best character work that is being done today. He's a guy that if I see his company uh, is working on anything or I see his name come up in the credits of anything, I'm immediately interested in it because I know that there's going to be some really, really compelling character makeups in there. They're very... Technically interesting and technically well uh, pulled off. This is uh, not a movie or anything, but I recently got a book, and I'm totally blanking on the name of it, but it was it's a Makeup Effects history book put out by Howard Berger of uh, KNB Effects. I just recently started reading through it. It's really cool. It's um, sort of retrospective on the history of Makeup Effects as a whole, and they take little sound bites from different makeup effects artists about different topics the first chapter is all about the universal horror films and and uh, every bit of it is just like different makeup effects artists and different filmmakers sort of talking about how influential those were and, and you know, interesting things uh, surrounding that stuff. So that's a really cool uh, book that I'm I'm reading and I'm very inspired by at the moment. So I recently finished Dahmer, mm-hmm. what is it called? Dahmer, De- or Monster, Dad, De- no, Dahmer. Dash Monster colon, The Jeffrey Dahmer Story. The worst fucking title for I anything, agree. Uh, despite the fact that like it was actually a pretty solid show. Yeah. So I know there's been, you know, there, there are different opinions on like true crime stuff. And I personally like to see it be a bit more respectful and <laughs> not to get too in the weeds on this, but like, you know, there were news stories about the families of the victims being very upset by their story being told again uh, in this. The question that I don't know that anybody has asked is why the hell are all these news outlets bugging the family about right. this?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's kinda of like aggravating the wound, throwing a little salt on it.
2: Leave them leave alone. Yeah. I thought the performance was really good and I thought the period makeups for that were really good. That's a, it's an interesting case of like I'm not quite old enough to remember Jeffrey Dahmer's trial, but I you know, I grew up in the nineties, and so it's interesting to see period makeups from a period that I remember. Right, right. And, you know, there's a lot of hair and, and wardrobe and makeup that goes into making that convincingly the 90s or the 80s or the 70s, depending on what era of the story they're telling. And that stuff, I mean, there's a reason that those are the types of things that, that typically win the awards for, you know, best hair and makeup right. is because it's a lot of work. Absolutely. and. and you know, you're going to have audience members that lived through yes. those time periods and they can instantly see through yeah. whether, you know, like whether you've been accurate and genuine with what that or whether you're just like, "Ah, oh, we've got a modern actor and we're going to throw him in a flannel or whatever, you know.
1: <laughs> and they look at those set design pieces and things like that. Like, you know, is that a 1985 Aries K car or did you like, you know, just right. dumb down a Ford Taurus, you know, that came out 10 years ago yeah. to try and look like it, you know, so. But yeah there's there's little little things in series like that that I find myself enjoying is looking at the set pieces and how accurate they are getting with the times you know that I haven't gotten a chance to see Dahmer yet myself but I know Josh has but I've have seen plenty of the you know hubbub about it you know i don't think netflix did themselves a lot of favors because i think they tried to tag it or market it as an LGBT plus story they actually did it was like in that category i think and i'm like oh, i mean i understand that dahmer (laughs) as far as his preferences might have landed in in one of those descriptors but it's not an inspirational story of the ages for those folks and i don't think they're brutalized by a monster right 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 you know,
2: wasn't the Babadook also
1: listed as an LGBTQ uh, it, thing? It might Netflix, have been. Though? I know that there's a few occasions <laughs> that I noticed, but I didn't, you know, I didn't make a scene about it, but I've, I've yeah, I know there's been times that I've seen LGBTQ plus, you know, tag stories on Netflix. I'm like, how is Why? Yeah. Why would you is do it, this? Right. But I think sometimes it's just because maybe like there's a, a prominent person or actor in it or a director that might be, you know, one of those descriptors and, you Could know, be AI
0: generated too.
1: Well, that that could be as well.
2: The best thing to come out of that whole Boba Duke being misfiled is that, and I'm not sure if that's true or if that was just a joke somebody did. But the best thing to come out of that is that the Boba Duke became a gay icon, and so like, <laughs> you can see all these pictures from pride parades and stuff of people dressed up as the Boba Duke <laughs> just in the like middle
0: of everything.
1: <laughs> just a case of making the best out of a bad situation, I guess. You yeah.
0: Know? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, Logan, I know that we had a hell of a time talking to you today and and definitely appreciate the variety and the insight (laughs) that you brought to the program for us this week. And we'd certainly love to have you back on at some point, especially if, uh, you know, there's some good piece of cinema out there that we can have a a conversation about some of the makeup effects and that sort of stuff. in, you know, we love having artists on man.
0: medium is uh, special to our to our type. So, yeah, appreciate it for sure.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah. I'd love to be back on.
1: Absolutely. Anybody that's watching with us live, thank you guys for tuning in and the conversation with Logan Cole today. We're going to be tagging him on our social media feeds. Of course, we've been doing that up to this point. Uh, so you can keep tabs on Logan and his work. And, and maybe there's some unsuspecting and casual viewers out there that might want to employ his services in the future. So in our conversations earlier, hit him up on Instagram. Hell yeah, man. He's, Go check it out. He's very responsive. So yep. Logan, thank you for your time today, sir. We appreciate you. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you some other time.
0: Take care, Logan. All
1: right. Have a good one, guys. Thanks to our guest this week, Logan Cole. Be sure to check out Logan on Instagram. We have tagged his profile in this episode's information, as well as tagged Logan's Instagram profile on Instagram specifically. You can see it in our stories as well as on our wall. Next week, we are bringing you guys horror stories from your bud tender. Friend of the show, Robert Scott, who has been a contributor on a couple different occasions. He had a submission for our Cato tribute episode. He as well had two hilarious submissions for the July special. Robert Scott's going to come on. He is a bud tender uh, by trade. So he has got some interesting stories for the podcast. We're going to get into things about the marijuana prohibition and cannabis prohibition over the years and and get into some funny stories and we're also going to get a little historical with it and uh, just have a good time so if you guys are moderately interested in just kind of what the medical cannabis programs are offering out there there's going to be a little bit of educational pieces but we're actually having a conversation with somebody that actually works in the industry as well so it's not all just fun and games. There's a little bit of an educational approach going to be taken, but a totally lighthearted fare overall. So we look forward to you guys tuning in next week for episode 39 with Robert Scott and Horror Stories from Your Bud Tender, keeping with the theme of Halloween and all things spooky in this spooky season. For this week, I'm at Barry Insane on Instagram and Twitter. Be sure to follow the ATI podcast across all social media to stay updated with the show and its ongoings. We will also, in the coming days, have a new episode drop for waxing on with RJ. We've got episode three coming our way with myself, Barrett, as well as Ridge and Jake Jackson. That will be exclusively posted on our YouTube channel and shared across our social media platforms. So keep your ear to the ground for that. Good night and good luck. Y'all stay safe out there. This is Barrett from the ATI podcast. Each week, Josh and I discuss current events, pop culture, music, TV, movies, politics, sports. Nothing is out of bounds. You can also tune in to learn about rising artists, small businesses, whether it's music, graphic design, filmmaking, or even a brick and mortar mom and pop shop. We'll be spotlighting folks and their endeavors. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Anchor, or anywhere you enjoy your podcasts. Just search ATI Podcast. We would like to thank you for your continued support, and as always, please stay safe out there.